Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space, so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And remember to include the name The Scoreless Sort of Podcast in your application. Thank you. Man there trying to stop Joe from getting himself into further trouble. It's not a bad ball for Pelle on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was. Carlos Alberto. Madonna just walked away from Hoddle then. Maldano, smoked and Maldano! And appealing for offside, the ball came back off the foot of Steve Hodge. And Maradona gives Argentina the lead. The England players protesting to the referee. Half final, we have opeens a gevoel that we in the finale are coming. With the ball sits for Frank de Boer. Frank de Boer speelt the ball. Heel goed naar Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp neemt de bal aan. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Oh! Frank de Boer speelt de bal aan Dennis Bergkamp. Die neemt de bal feilloos aan. En die schiet de bal erin. Welcome to the, the first ever book club episode of the scoreless thriller podcast i'm joined as always by leon leon how are you doing i'm super excited to be here today and down the line in zoom we're joined by paul watson um just going to read your linkedin page uh (laughs) (laughs) published author and freelance journalist editor and copywriter and international international football coach is that what you go by as the first first line that's what yeah, I I was a bit thrown there. I forgot I had a LinkedIn page. It's so <laughs> <laughs> a good moment. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I was a former former international football coach, I suppose. Um, yeah, although kind of, you know. 
Yeah, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we're going to be discussing Up Pompeii, which was written by uh, Paul Watson, which charts his course through coaching the Pompeii national team, which we have both we have both read and greatly enjoyed. How how long did it take you to get the correct pronunciation of Pompeii, and how many like different ways have you tried? You know, the funniest thing about it is that it took me a long time to get the wrong pronunciation. In that it's technically Pompeii. Um, the the island's name is Ponape and um, I used to call it Ponape and then when I went there I found pretty much all the locals or all the people I worked with always said just said Pompeii because it saves that extra second and when you add that up over the course of a year you save about a day <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny when it, before you went there I'd never heard of it obviously and everyone says Pompeii you know the, the, yeah. the volcanic mountain everyone says that. And, and from reading but, the from, from reading the book, it's clear that time management is very uh, important to the Pompeii people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess there's never been a place that has uh, got more time to more time to waste probably than than there. But um, yeah, it, it's it's a really strange thing that um, that sort of marks you out as almost marked me out as a foreigner by trying to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> okay, but that's good to know. Then we we won't be scared. It's either Pompeii or Pompeii. Yeah. We'll, we'll run with whatever <laughs> works best for us, I guess. Well, kind of, let's kind of go back to the beginning and start from there. And if you want to kind of flesh out where the idea to move your life across the world and take up coaching the Pompeii national team, like where, what was the kind of seed which started that whole idea and process? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think it's probably, it's probably a conversation most people have had, you know, crazy football fans have had. At some point, that um, you know, we, me and my flatmate at the time, Matt, we sort of got to a stage in our lives where we were technically adults. We were twenty-five, but we'd never properly grown up and moved on from that childhood thing of thinking one day we're going to play for England. You know, one day we'll make it as footballers. Um, there were a lot of signs we wouldn't, such as being not particularly good at football, <laughs> and um, the fact that I was kind of trying to make it at kind of low semi-pro level in the UK, so sort of seventh division of the UK and failing mm. to do that but still it got to this point at 25 and both had a bit of a crisis um, and and what it led to was this conversation that I think millions of football fans have had of well look we can't play for England it's never going to happen even even in 2008 even under Steve McLaren we couldn't play for England but <laughs> you know wait a minute what if we've been born in and you know the, the example we usually come to is something like Andorra or San Marino because you see them in qualifiers and think, well, how hard can that be? And basically what we did, which I think most people don't do because they have something better to do, is um, take it to its its kind of ridiculous conclusion and not just stop at Andorra and think, well, yeah, actually, we wouldn't get in that team, but go all the way down to the very bottom of the rankings uh, and even beyond yeah. the ranking to, to find where you could play. Yeah, yeah, I like, I like that part in the book when you said, so, okay, we kind of checked out the players with the lowest ranking teams and now we find out we have to we found out we have to move beyond the FIFA rankings <laughs> this is we have to find someone who is not even on it and then yeah, I mean, yeah at the very bottom this is the thing I mean we're going back a few years now so the teams we mentioned at the bottom aren't anymore at the bottom uh, in fact Monster after now they're much better than they, they ever had but at the time we were looking you'd see these, these names and think well how hard can it be to play for you know Bhutan and actually you know, if you actually saw the quality of some of these players, you'd think, that's no, no way on earth. And you, you keep running across a player who played in 
you know, English third division here or there or something, you think, oh, <laughs> no way that we're going to a training session with them and not getting found out pretty fast. Yeah. So, so then the, the, this was the spark, this was the initial idea. But then my question would be, how do you actually manage to put this into practice? Because there's so many plans that one has in one's life where you know that it is kind of crazy and out there, but it would be nice to follow through with it. But then you never manage. And then with your story, I think it's very inspiring that this is like the one time that someone actually does it. Yeah, well, I guess, and sure enough, it's just dumb luck. Um, basically, we... We got to the end of FIFA rankings. We discovered there was a non-FIFA rankings list for places that don't qualify for FIFA recognition for whether it's political reasons or whether it's just simply they never had a team or, or they're one, in Pompeii's case, it's one island out of four that should make up a country, but they're separated by thousands yeah. of islands. <laughs> yeah. put it together. Um, and we found this list, went to the very bottom, found Pompeii listed because they'd never won a game of any kind um, and they'd recently lost to... Their nation, their, their nearest neighbours, yeah, on penalties, I think. Um, but before that, they'd lost 16-1 to Guam. Um, and basically, we sent an email to the FA email address, which we thought would never, ever reply to us. And, and you know, we could go back and go about our lives. It's completely happy to, you know, that was the end of the process. Yeah. The thing that was crazy was that we got a reply, and the reply basically said, uh, from this guy called Charles Musano, who'd lived there for 15, 20 years, as the football, kind of main football man said, I'd love to help you, but I've just moved to London. And that was, you know, we, at the time we were living in London. So it was the craziest thing. He, he kind of said, you know, meet up, we can meet up and have a chat. And, you know, all the coincidences, he happens to have moved 9,000 miles to London or, but yeah, 9,000 miles to London. And we, we met up, you know, up with him and had a curry with him. And that was yeah. probably, that coincidence changed it from being a stupid thing to something that could happen because what what he told us was kind of you know he saw he saw us for what we were and said look you know i don't i don't think you're stupid enough to really think this is a sensible plan he didn't say it as not as horrible honestly guys you know, lads what are you thinking yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think he basically said look I, i've spent a long time trying to develop football on this island i've left now i feel really sad that i can't do that anymore you know you can't go out and play for this team I think you kind of know that, but yeah. you know, the football's really dropped off, and I think it's it's it needs someone to go and run it. And you know, if you want to do that, by all means. And I think he kind of said that as one of those rhetorical things. It's kind of a throwaway comment, you know. <laughs> if you want to go do that, of course, and expected to to never hear anything more. From yeah, us. yeah, yeah. Uh, but that was kind of the moment we needed because I think at heart, you know, we'd looked into the realities of naturalising and. You can't really naturalize for any country very easily, and you certainly can't naturalize for Federated States of Micronesia without giving up your passport uh, and your UK passport and marrying and learning the language <laughs> and living there five years. So it's all of that. Quite a list, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if you're going to become the coach of a country, quite obviously they don't have that rule. Otherwise, you wouldn't have many foreign national coaches around. <laughs> so it, it kind of felt like for us it was a, a moment of, of growing up because it was like, well, actually, you know, this this sounds like more than just a stupid drunk anecdote. There's actually something we could do. Yeah, and then at one point, at one point, you just you just bought the the tickets for the well, flights. Yeah, there. as I, I always say to people, if this was a Hollywood movie, we'd have got on that flight the next week. But the reality was, we had I had a job, um, you know, a, a girlfriend, a job, uh, and no money. So for me, it was like 
saving up for a, a year to raise the money. Um, and and actually, what was good about that was it gave me a year to learn how to coach or try to learn how to coach. Yeah. I don't know, I did it very effectively, but basically I had a year of writing every single session down, trying to learn what I was doing, what I was doing, and just learning from the coaches. And strangely, even though I was, at the time I was playing, I'd given up on semi-pro, I went to an amateur team, uh, and actually ended up having a coach who'd been a Cagliari player in Serie A. Um, mm. And he was this amazing sort of Italian coach who was way too good for that level. Um, and, you know, every session I would, I would learn and learn and learn. And, uh, and I kind of saw it as a, as a bit of a rebirth in football because I was never a good footballer. Um, and I'd always tried to make up for that with just being as fit as I could and kind of getting by. But it was kind of a rebirth thing. Well, actually, maybe I could be a good coach. You know, there's no, there's no physical reason. Whereas as a footballer, I could, I could never have made it. I just didn't have that talent. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of an exciting moment. Yeah, definitely. How important do you think it was that you had this, it was kind of a joint endeavor with Matt, so that you had someone by your side who was equally eager to make this happen, and not just you by yourself, you know, having these weird ideas of going somewhere abroad to become a football coach? Yeah, I never would have done it alone. I think I've told people mm. afterwards, um, like, I wouldn't even eat in a restaurant alone. So, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, true. Like, I remember fine. reading that, yeah. There was something about that that thing that when one of us would maybe start to lose the lose the determination or start to think this is crazy, the other one would then happen to fall into a, a spell where they were like, "This is the best idea ever." <laughs> so, <laughs> like we'd have one voice of reason and one, and it, it wasn't always one way or the other way. Uh, it was you know, it, but it was it was really good to have the two of us doing it, and I think we both always thought, you know, if one of us if one of us kind of can't manage it the other one can take over in that so with me and Matt Matt's a brilliant sort of he's just very full of energy he's he's the life and soul of the party he's like a big charismatic big old like six foot three monster of a man yeah I'm very quiet and a bit shy and five <laughs> ten <laughs> I'm the kind of person you can meet and forget very quickly whereas Matt you don't so we had this two things he was the kind of um he was the like the, the big explosive one and I was the quiet pensive one and we kind of needed both of us to make it work I think yeah and then so when you both decided to to go like what was your first kind of impressions of the island and also of football when you when you got there like what did you do you uh, did you immediately want to get back on the plane and go home or what no not at all and actually I look back at it it's hard through it's 10 years ago now so it's hard through time sometimes to remember bits and pieces but but what I do remember is so getting there the biggest fear we had was someone else would get there ahead of us and it sounds as crazy as you might as it sounds you know that was our weird our biggest fear was we'd get there and there'd be some third rate English manager out there who's much better than us and we'd be like, yeah, yeah. get out there and meet David Moyes but <laughs> what we had was um, what we had was we got there and we were really worried too much for us because we went with Charles Musana, the guy who'd run football. So he came with us. We we said, look, we'll, we'll not only will we save up for our flights, we'll, we'll pay for your flights. We'll bring you over with us because otherwise, how are we going to get to know everyone? Yeah. So Charles was pointing back to us that everyone's massively keen. Everyone's really excited. Um, and so we got there thinking there's going to be hundreds of people. We're going to get found out. In fact, we're really inexperienced. We don't know what we're doing. Um, so we got to this island and, you know, we've been flying for 20 six hours the whole journey takes 30 hours it includes sort of a couple of stays in on bed 
on airport floors and stuff like that. So you you get there and you feel pretty dreadful. Mm. But that night, you know, two hours later, we're going off to to, to the field. Um, and so the first impression is like we're exhausted, but this island is just beautiful. It's tropical. It's hot. Um, it's incredibly hot. Um, and suddenly all the time it sort of dropped away and it was more just the fear of God, we're going to get there and have 150 people look at us and go okay what are we doing oh, we don't know what we're doing um, yeah. so the reality when we got there we got to the field there was one person <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, it was this weird mixture of like relief and also oh did we just travel the length of the world for, for nothing yeah, did this, you have all your training it. sessions like set out for everything and then yeah, you know, like... <laughs> yeah so being the kind of being very much a, a typical Englishman, you know, real like overplanned. <laughs> I, I had filled out notebook after notebook with with drills and exercises and yeah, all the stuff course. you think you've got to do to be a coach when you're not a coach. Um, so I turned up with 15 sessions ready to go. If we have eight people, if we have 70 people, if we have, uh, and sure enough, none of it was useful. Not not any of it at any point. But I always felt that's what you have to do. It was like a learning process about coaching in general is, you know, you don't coach in a, te- in a notebook, you, you coach people who are physically present. And it was almost like the first bit of learning that was yeah. turning up with my plan for 50 people, 100 people, and there being one. <laughs> and a lot of toads. <laughs> yeah, right. So, we, yeah, so it was it was a really interesting experience. So we, what we ended up doing was eventually, as we learned, people are very late on the island all the time. It's you know, a well-known phenomenon, island time. We didn't know it. Uh, yeah. An hour later, after the time they told everyone, we, we had about 12 people. Eventually, we got about 14, 16 people. Some of them had played lots. Some of them had not played much at all. And we just had a kick around. And it was this beautiful, you know, it was, it was dark by that point. There was one floodlight working, but it was like sort of tropical night, really hot. The pitch was completely flooded, as it always is, with, you know, frogs hopping around, flooded pitch. Yeah. And it was just this amazing experience, you know. And in a way, in that one night, I sort of felt, okay, you got to stop expecting everything to be like England. You know, this is this is going to be something completely different. But if you go with it, maybe it'll be something really special. Yeah, and also during that first uh, coaching or the, that first match, you said that Roger, who also played, that he had no impact on the game, but nonetheless, a grin never left his face. And I thought there was quite a interesting way or beautiful way of describing this approach of the islanders uh, to football before it was professionalized or anything happened and then based on this idea my question would kind of be do you think um in the process of becoming more and more professional and also maybe trying to uh, make athletes out of the, the players that were there do you think something is lost by this becoming more of a competitive thing these, or, or, or is it possible to com- combine these two things where, where, where this one one aspect, an element of it is just like pure happiness and joy and the other one is kind of this idea of, okay, we want to be competitive and win matches? That's a really good point. It's a really good point. And one of the big things that we learned was um, that we had to learn from the island. You know, we, we were learning more there than they were learning from us, obviously. But, you know, that, that goes without saying. But you, you go in and what I, what I learned from the island was basically there was this love and this joy of playing but also there were things about the nature of players the way the Pompeians approached football that were actually really beneficial and what we didn't want to do was set about training out of it and making a crappy English Sunday league team out of the players because 
not only would that be detrimental uh, in terms of their enjoyment of the game, if we made a sort of four four two football, <laughs> you know, stodgy English team out of them. Yeah. But um, also, we'd actually be making a much weaker team than the team that they had. They had these attributes that were really, you know, amazing attributes, but they would be trained out of you at an early age in England by the fear of failure, by the the fear of being responsible for conceding a goal, all those kind of things I remember learning as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old. You don't get caught in possession, hoof it out of the field rather than get caught in possession. Yes, yeah. yeah, the same here in Germany, exactly the same thing. <laughs> you're the last defender. <laughs> and it's amazing because, yeah, and, and you're dealing with this idea that, oh, wait a minute, we don't have to put this fear into them. You know, it's it's so it was always a bit of a balance. Like We tried to make a team that could function um, in a competitive sense, but also where they didn't lose that love of the game, they didn't lose all those attributes. And it was a balancing act, because I think we did have to trim out some of the some of the elements of that. Um, but, but I think that came later on when, you know, at first it was all about participation. So we just wanted to, we set up a league, we just had people playing for fun. And yeah. it was all just fun-based, it was participation. And it was only actually when we got to the point where the players were saying, look, we need something to play for. The, the real, like, most keen players who were coming every day to the field were like, we need a target, you know, we need a game. Once we set a game and a fixture, those players that were coming day in, day out actually wanted to be, to feel more like, you know, a professional environment. They wanted to feel like they were elite athletes. And they actually, they they were they were all pushing us to give them more structure. And so we, we really did mould them more into a team that could, you know, that could compete uh, off the island. But, but it's funny because even at that point I was really reticent to, to try and put that fear into them um, uh, and a lot of it was the mentality their mentality they'd only ever seen teams go off the island to get thrashed so a lot of the players really needed to not have that fear <laughs> to be almost the opposite to be kind of coached into feeling that they could succeed Yeah. so it really was a difficult balance when they'd do something that you'd be like oh my god don't do that (laughs) (laughs) can you give an example of like what was because i think you mentioned the book that you saw them at the start when you saw them play football like it looked it's it didn't look like any kind of football that you'd ever seen before because it was like football outside of the kind of social cultural kind of like confines or like norms of what you would view as football normally i mean some of the some of the very early games it was a mixture because some of the players had played a lot and and had trained under charles masana the guy who brought us there and some of them were really you know, good footballers who obviously had a very firm grasp of the rules and how to play. And then others were real novices, had, had just seen their mates playing. Usually a drop by to take the piss out of their mates because that's one of the famous, that's like one of their favourite activities. Turn <laughs> up, you know, your mate do something they're not good at, take the piss. But then it kind Sounds of got dragged into playing. And some of them were playing quite literally for the first time ever. So they would do something like catch the ball and hoof it into the, the car park. <laughs> <laughs> that whole level and, and you know the sliding head first into someone's knee was quite a popular tactic at one point and you know there were just things that you thought wow that's mental but in the middle of that was something incredible like some skill that you thought wow how's anyone learned that here yeah. so so it was it was an incredible mixture and I think as it got as the league happened players got more they got more regulated I guess because part of the league process was teaching the local guys how to how to referee how to officiate so they would officiate their own games rather than it being one white guy running around telling them what to do which was never a good look we we would try and get people bought into it so as that went on it, it sort of standardized what the game looked like a lot more which was you know which was was kind of a big factor um in, in this kind of elite 
squad becoming more like a, a team that would be able to go off the island and compete. I've got one quick question because while I was reading the book, um, I was so excited about the league and the league starting. And then you never get to know what the final table actually is. Yeah, who like, won the league? Yeah, no, no, we, I think we know. Like Red Bulls, they okay. they win the league, but then who comes second? And what's 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 the final table? Oh, you're questioning that. <laughs> ten, ten years ago. <laughs> I know it's a lot to ask, but oh man. I can tell you for sure the Pitbulls won. Yeah, that was the team which ended up having more or less like maybe three quarters, four fifths of the national team so it was or the state team it was pretty much like Juventus in 2006 you know? <laughs> <laughs> like the team and Dilshan who was our captain was the captain of that team and, and was just you know they were full of great players but then you the second place team I believe was I oh, I see I believe it's either my team the international, the international. Team, oh. played for. I think it might have been international FC which, which yeah. was this like glorified ragtag of players, mostly uh, people who were like, you know, expats on the island, people who were like 40, 45. Just sometimes I think I tell the story in the book of cruising for footballers and just going into bars and looking for men who might be able to play football and how odd that <laughs> process was. Yeah, knocking on the doors <laughs> yeah. of the Mormons and everything. Oh, and cold calling the Mormons. Yeah, so we did cold call the Mormons at their Mormon hut to try and get them to play football and you know this process of assembling teams was was very haphazard but the, the, the Island Pipples were by far and away the strongest and then I think International FC may have finished second okay. in that year then the college of Micronesia I think which was the university team was, was, was pretty good um, oh well those Seventh-day Adventists weren't bad either so they were a religious group on the island who had a team oh okay, um, yeah 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 true yeah but it, it, it was you know it was an um, it was an amazing thing watching that all that league will come together. I'm very fond of the memory of it. And I remember one of my, one of my proudest moments was watching, well, playing against, as, as an international FC player, playing against the Island Pitbulls, who I was coaching the players of for the state team, and watching them absolutely run rings around me and thinking, okay, we're, we're getting somewhere now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sounded like the first big step also in the book. And then I, I felt like there was a turning point kind of in the in, in the whole story was when you get to know Dilshan because then he has got so many so much local knowledge of all the talents but also of kind of the politics that you have to play in order to set this up it really feels like he was the enabler for this bigger thing happening I guess yeah for sure and without Dilshan there was no none of this would have happened so so basically um, to kind of tell the story of people who won't have read it which is everyone outside of my family and you guys <laughs> <laughs> um, basically Dilshan wasn't wasn't Pompeii and he'd lived there for years and years he's Sri Lankan his family had moved there shortly after the civil war his family had moved out to Pompeii he was a cricketer um, maybe even on course to play for the national team of cricket like a brilliant cricketer played for Sri Lanka and then uh, obviously there's no cricket in Pompeii so he took up football and he had basically single-handedly since, since Charles Musano had sort of dropped back a little bit, he had been coaching these guys day in, day out, day in, day out. And suddenly we had arrived. Um, and, you know, for Dilshan, it's just like the craziest result for him. It's like an amazing thing to happen because partly because he overestimated how good we were at everything, <laughs> but partly I think he thought, well, look, this is my chance. So he was kind of my... Uh, he had this amazing role where he was local enough that he could talk to the players and they respected him, liked him, he was a friend. He was seen as Pompeian yeah. in most ways. 
he could even speak quite a lot of the local language. But he was also foreign enough that he could come to me and understand when I would say to him, what, what's going on here? So it was this perfect middle ground where me and Dilshan would just drive around all day doing tasks, you know, putting these things together. And I would often say to him, can we do this? And he'd say, no. And I'd say, why can't we do this? He'd say, that would be a grave insult. You'd never be spoken to again by that person. I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Pull it dodged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he would do this amazing sort of um, middle point where I could run things by him. And likewise, if, if the players wanted to know something from me, they were often quite shy in the early days. Yeah. You know, they didn't want to talk to authority, they were a bit shy. So they would ask him and he would come to me and I'll cut him. So we always had this way of relating that he had this perfect central figure. And so as, when he became captain, it was the ideal relationship that I always felt he would be honest with me and say, look, you know, and he did time and time again, he said, the players think this, you know, the players think this is crazy, the players don't understand why you're doing this, the players think this. Uh, even through to him saying, at one point, the players think you're 50 years old. <laughs> but it's just, it was sort of a, yeah, it's just all these things where it was like, and it really helps. It really, really helps. And one of the big things that Dilshan was able to do was because a lot of his friends were the players and because I didn't have a lot of friends there, Matt actually uh, had to go back home pretty early on. So mm. I was left with just Dilshan. And what he could do is bring me into the social situations with the players. And so what actually helped the most was when I'd gone there trying to be as professional as I could to impress the players and think, well, that's what you do. And actually, it was when I was at my least professional that actually I won them over. So the times that we'd go out drinking or go out to an island and have barbecue, get stoned, and, you know, those yeah. were the times the players actually ended up liking me. And, and you know, that, that was the craziness. Um, yeah. Although Dilshan doesn't drink, right? The the big reveal of the on the pod exclusive. Yeah, because I remember there was one at the end of the book. Like he, after the whole Guam uh, um, trip, he he's he won't take off his sunglasses, and I was like, oh, okay, maybe he actually was was on a night out before that. Oh, one. they all got. I mean, yeah, Guam, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What we had, like, this group of young lads. <laughs> I mean, the Guam to Pompeians is like Las Vegas. You know, it's like the the bright lights, the most exciting thing. So we've taken this group of lads, most of whom had never been off the island, to basically the, like, sin city of the region. So we just kept them on the tightest leash for that entire tour. Yeah. But we always said, from the last night, you just do whatever you want to do because me and Matt were going to go off and get drunk and, like, we didn't want the responsibility of, like, having them with us yeah we to let them off the leash they deserved it but we didn't want to know what they did so that nah, makes the idea. just look at them all at the airport like, <laughs> you know but yeah no Dilshan me and Dilshan would, would often go for a few beers in the bar and you know it, it was a really good way to unwind it's just you know me and him would just go for drinks in the evenings and sort of plot over over a beer in a nice bar overlooking the ocean it was, it was a pretty good time really yeah <laughs> so sounds, sounds like it I mean, there's there's one thing I'd, I'd like to go back to, though, because you said earlier that a lot of the players um, regard, saw you as kind of a, an authority in a way. And um, 
when I was reading the book also, you, you even mentioned in the, with the book this idea of football connected to imperialism. And this is maybe also part of this bigger scheme within FIFA, where FIFA gives money to certain states and not to others. And the question like why and what, what is the motivation behind it and what's the politics behind it. But like maybe more towards your, your own personal story. How does it feel if you as a guy from Britain goes to a different country and then, I mean, you've, you, you've got maybe the money and the education and then um, you, you, you teach them how to do a certain sport. Do you think there's any tension there sometimes? I mean, I think you do because you wrote it in the book, but how did, how, how did this play out? What, what, what were the difficult parts there? Uh, it's really interesting you say that. I mean, it's funny because at the time I was very young and naive and I don't think it, at, when I was 25, I don't think it really massively crossed my mind. I wasn't particularly political. I wasn't particularly well versed in history of, you know, colonial history or anything. So it wasn't a huge part of my thinking at the time. Yeah. It it more self regulated that. I'd like to think I'm a fairly sensitive and I'm not a guy who, who goes and barrels into places and believes that they know everything and you know. So I I felt like I went over with the the best of intentions, um, and so I didn't have. I'd like to think I didn't really have a very colonial sort of outlook on the world. Yeah. Um, and so therefore, I, I, I don't think I was in any massive danger of, of going down that road. But actually, it was after I left and partly through the process of Pompeii and experiencing it and its history and becoming more interested in the outside world and, and the politics and, 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 and non-FIFA football specifically in its politics, that I started to learn a lot about colonialism and its its impacts and um and what britain had done in the world and the, you know the terrible things britain had done in the world um and i think now i look back at it i'm i'm kind of i, I don't look back with any regret i don't think i really behaved in a colonial way but i i really understand the sensitivity towards it and um and it's funny because this same story of two you know two white guys going over to uh, a country in the middle of the Pacific and take over a national team that doesn't exist, you know, try to teach people to play football actually already sounds different now than it would have done 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing, you know, it's a yeah. very good thing. That things that way. But, um, but it is interesting because I think, I think whenever I talk about this, this story, I'm really keen to point out that, you know, I, I was the one learning, I was the butt of the jokes, you know, it was all, it, it was uh, an experience of me being taught by the Pompeians infinitely more than I ever taught them but uh, I think we navigated it together and yeah I, I think it helped that I didn't want to be a, a kind of a coach authority figure in that way yeah. I, was, I was just not really ready for that and I, it didn't make me happy so I kind of wanted the players to be friends but I also knew that at certain points you had to something of an authority figure otherwise you're not going to be able to coach people yeah no that makes sense yeah. But I mean, I guess it's super interesting because there was also, I, I don't know whether you saw it, but uh, the documentary Next Go Wins, where, which tells the story of Thomas Rongen and American Samoa. And there was also a question I had that suddenly like this guy from Holland comes there and has a, has a clear vision of what he wants to achieve and certainly brings a lot to the players, but also takes a lot from the island personally and in the way of living life. So it seems to be like an exchange can be possible between the players and their cultures and then the ideas that are brought in from abroad so yeah yeah i, I think it, 
partly what it what it depends. I think a coach that wants to go abroad and work, whether it's at whether it's in Federated States or Micronesia or, or whether you're coaching Real Madrid, like you you you've got to go over it and understand as a that there's a learning process there. It's not you, you're not going out there to build uh, a team in your own image, devoid of the culture you're going into. And I think I understood that luckily, not for any great skill or you know any any learn any knowledge that I had at the time, any wisdom. But I think I learned that I knew that because um, I, I think I was lucky because I knew that I couldn't do it the other way. I wasn't a good enough young. I wasn't a good enough coach. I wasn't old enough. I couldn't have gone out there and been Sam Allardyce and you know <laughs> said you know this is how we're playing we're playing like this you know and tried to make a, a Bolton Wanderers team out of those guys if I wanted to so luckily I yeah. think I went in knowing that I had to learn knowing that I had to be humble about things and and, and understand the culture uh, and luckily I already had that advantage of being not a good enough coach to do it any other way and now I look back I know that even if I was a much better coach that's still what you'd have to do but. I can see why people fall into the trap of thinking that um, authority must be must you know you have to have authority and you have to mm. portray yourself a certain way. And I actually learned this a bit later in Mongolia, where I approached things very similar way as Micronesia, and it didn't work so well because people wanted me to be effectively a despot. <laughs> they wanted me to be a sort of Soviet-style drill sergeant, and I wasn't. And it really actually didn't work very well in Mongolia, which was a very interesting insight for me. Learning that that certain places people want you to behave that way, and if you can't, if it's not in your nature, you're going to really struggle. Hmm. So after you like had assembled the national team and you took them on this uh, tour to Guam to get their first ever victory, what did it like feel like when you won the the country's first game? Was that sort of the the entire highlight of the entire trip, or how did that kind of feeling come about? Um, the bit the bit that I, I struggled to get across now to people. And I suppose it makes sense. So we we set this this tour of Guam as our as our target. Uh, we were speaking to Guam FA, and they said, "Look, you, you can play against a Guam under sort of under 17s under sixteens team. You know, uh, you, you really don't want to play a national full team." And we we agreed. You know, we yeah. have any purpose. And then we'd assembled this these other games against a second division team and two against other first division teams in Guam. And so we'd always had our eyes on the fact that we really needed a win. Even though, you know, obviously there's so much more to life than that, the fact is there was a huge stigma about the fact Pompeii never won. Uh, and also that we'd go home and people would see, there was this tendency to see Pompeii as not being able to succeed in team sports. And yeah. especially yeah. So if we'd gone home with massive defeats, um, it's very possible that everyone would have thought, well, what was the point in that? Let's, let's give up. So we needed a win. And what was terrifying was we had no idea what the level was because we were so in isolation. As I said, like the best we could do was play Pompeii versus foreigners eleven, but that would often include like you know fifty year old who had just had knee surgery, or you know, <laughs> like there was no way, or me even worse, me. So you know, there was no way of really trying to get an idea of how. So how how did you know how far down the pyramids to to go to to you know to to kind of have a good chance of a win? In Guam, but the Guam FA just offered us teams, and we took you know it wasn't really a relationship where we could have. I'm not even sure that there was much below the Guam second division. I think we took a team that had been relegated from the first division and two that were in the first division. Yeah. Uh, but I think really a case of Guam FA went away and got teams who were willing to play us, and we just took it. And I think we were in a very like uh, that we were like the 
junior partner there. So whatever they offered us, we were going to take. And so we had no, we had no way of knowing what these player, what these players were like, what the team, the level was. And so there was there was this fear going into one that, however much we'd really trained, and you know, we were at that point training in some capacity, whether that was like active or or sort of more kind of studying training. We we were doing five day week week training sessions. We were in the gym at five a.m. in the morning when it was it was. Uh, cool enough to be in there you know we were we were properly working hard yeah. we had no idea if we'd get out and lose 30 nil in every game yes yeah. there's nothing to gauge it against um and so the fear of us getting trashed every game was so huge that actually we did lose i think we lost three two in the first game and we, we squandered some chances and then we got into the second game and um they were just uh they they had no idea what they were up against in terms of for them it was just a a kind of freedom friendly for a, a pretty much, I imagine, amateur Guam who were just guys with jobs. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they come down to this game and we were just pumped up. You know, we were in the dressing room, they were like belting out there, like Pompeii and the Pompeian chants, and we were studying on the walls of the dressing room. <laughs> and you know, they came out and we, we went, I, can't, I don't exactly remember when we scored the goals, but we, we went 6 0 up. Yeah. Um, and I, no, no word of a lie, I, I think at about 75 minutes, we conceded to go 6-1. And I'm stood there on the sideline just going, don't give this away. Do not give it. And I'm just pacing yeah. and I'm nervous and I'm sweating. Yeah. And now I look at it, I'm embarrassed. But genuinely, a bit of my brain was like, could you imagine if we gave this away? <laughs> <laughs> like, Seven, six loss. I mean, I, that would be the end of football on the island here forever. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't, you don't recover from this. Down in like no. folklore for years to come. We were six nil up even, and we lost. <laughs> um, so yeah, we won that one seven one, and it was nice because there's quite a lot of Pompeians in Guam, and loads of them had turned up to help feed our players, and you know they bought food every night and they'd come and have like kind of have like an evening with the players and chat to them, and, and so there was like this mini pitch invasion of like Pompeians in Guam. <laughs> And like players, you know, players with flags, players in tears, and it was like this most tiny, tiny thing that no one else in the rest of the world cared about. But it just so much this 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 little group of players. And yes, there was something quite special about that. I think like it. I, I almost the more the world didn't care, the more special it felt that this this thing had happened. No, we have like a very good comparison from you know when we covered the film Next Goal Wins and we talked to. Nicky Salapu, the American Samoan goalkeeper who was in goal when they lost 31-0 and he talked about like the feeling they had when they won that game his first his first win against Tonga in in 2015 and like the pure joy it had for him and I've like listened to people who who were at that game and there's like five people there and like no one cares but like it was for those stories it was like players it was their World Cup final and their yeah, story it meant the world to them yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure and it meant that when they went home it was they were treated differently for our players you know going back to Pompeii was like they'd won they'd won a game and no one really cared if it was against the Guam second division team or you know it was against a team and they went off the island to Guam and they won and it was like um, I think quite a big moment but yeah but was this the point when when you crushed crushed the crushers because I think (laughs) I think they were called crushers yeah to get that in yeah some question. No, but was, was this the point where you finally were like, okay, I've 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 managed all that I set out to do, 
Um, because it feels like throughout the book, it's always something you, you you manage to set up the league, but then you're not actually so sure whether you'll get um, financial aid and funding for the trip to Guam. But you kind of already told the players that that's going to happen next. So it kind of feels like you're constantly in this thing where you have to make yet another thing happen. But then when the when finally you win like the first international match for. Um, the team or with the team then it kind of feels like okay now you can check off the list last thing of the list and have this feeling of okay i've i've come here and i've i have achieved what i what i set out to do kind of yeah i mean actually weird so weird become really aware that we had to create something sustainable and to do that it had to be more than you know it couldn't be run by foreigners because we couldn't live our lives there forever it'd been 18 months you know, had to get on with my life. Like, yeah. I'd also run into 10 grand's worth of debt, like 10K in debt because of this project, which was never coming back. And I had to work my way out of that. I knew it. Mm. But, you know, I needed to move on with my life. I had my girlfriend here, who's now my wife, luckily. Yeah. Mm. Oh, but, yeah, know, we were wondering fun. about this, but glad yeah. to hear glad to hear that. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I was reading the book and then you're like, something like sounded different in the way she told her stories, like that one week. And I was like, oh, no, I mean, it's long distance and it's at the other end of the world. But then you're like... Um, and then I found out it was the swine flu, and I was like, "Oh, that's super bad too." But also glad that still oh, the long distance thing works out. Yeah, that's not what I said to her when she said she had swine flu. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> After that, I thought I was getting dumped. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got to the end of this thing. She had sacrificed a lot. You know, being behind me for this, I'd borrowed money from friends, from family, from the bank. You know, and and that was you know that's how the project could run, and then. Me and Matt, we know we had to get on with our lives, and yeah. more importantly, we didn't want to do something that was like a flash in the pan and it's, it's gone and it's an anecdote. So we always had this in mind that after Guam we would leave, and that the players by that point, the key the key players who had been with us all that time, would have learned everything we knew, which wasn't wasn't massive amount, but they'd learned enough to coach and to run a team that they would go back and be that generation that would then continue. So we we were pretty happy knowing that we were going to leave with sixteen coaches basically they would go back to their community and they they would all have that enthusiasm they may not all do it but they were 16 people who were gonna bring that game and take it to another generation and that that pretty much is what happened um but the thing that i always thought was gonna happen too was that during the process we'd been involved um on the edges slightly but we'd we'd helped be involved in setting up the micronesian fa so the four islands that had to be one unit in order to get any fee for assistance yeah. had set up an FA again. They'd have one in the past, but it had been inactive. They'd set an FA and they'd started the process of trying to get in, into FIFA via Oceania football and eventually Asia football. And um, my feeling was always as we left, I was actually on a bit of a high because I thought, you know what, this island's going somewhere. Eventually it's going to get the development help it needs and it, it won't need people like me. But in the short term, hopefully it won't need me for people like me because it will have these players and they'll go back and they'll run their own football programs and and so I actually left feeling pretty positive about Pompeii and actually really quite negative about my prospects but um, the book someone once read the book and said I didn't like the ending because it feels very low key and then a bit depressing and I was like well it's it's not a fiction like I think yeah. I left feeling there wasn't yeah the, this person is wrong but <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I get what they're saying. I think what they're picking up on is when I was writing, when I write the book, at the end of that experience, there's a very, I felt very low about aspects of it because it's mm-hmm. a project you've thrown yourself into for so long. And I was kind of walking away and thinking, I, you know, massive debt here. I don't know exactly where this is going to lead. I've got to find a, go home and find an actual life now, you know, a proper, sustainable adult life. Yeah. And so I think I, I was feeling pretty low about it, but I always felt like we'd left the pieces in place that it, it, it was going to kick on. And actually, it's, it's amazing looking now from 10 years distance uh, that there's been no further assistance from FIFA in any regard. Yeah. That, that for me is like one of my biggest sadnesses in, in life. You know, it's something that, that does definitely linger over me sometimes. Is I would never have believed that was possible. Even with my slightly more cynical me after 18 months of trying to get in touch with FIFA, I, ne- I never would have believed it could be this long. Yeah. I mean, you see, I think you said online, like I think you t- said on Twitter, that maybe it would be a different thing if now um, they would try to reach out to the Oceania Football Association and try to um, make something work with him, with, with them. Maybe. There's a lot of talk, but there's always a lot of talk. There's definitely talk that the new Oceania Football Confederation is um, more inclusive and is, is more interested in engaging the other islands. Um but the reality is it's not it's never been proactive and it remains not proactive okay. so the thing that always frustrated me was that there are partly that the process is completely unclear there's no solid guide to what you have to do to get into Oceania football yeah. there's not like a tick box which you think there could be like a series of stages um, but the other frustration is that there's no proactivity in that like if you think of an island or a series of islands in their region would get in touch and say, look, we're really trying to develop football the best that we can. Here is evidence of us doing that. We need your help. Yeah. It should be really the, the responsibility of an organisation with that much manpower, clout and, and expertise and money yeah. to say to them, well, look, let us help you get where you need to be for us to, to provide you with the development assistance. But instead, it's quite the opposite. They sit back and seem to wait for you to, to deliver to them evidence of the fact you're already at this level, You know that we're already... Uh, a totally complicated yeah which makes zero sense if you want to develop the game in these places right it's just a horrible catch-22 it's like you know uh, if we could have got to if if we could be as developed as someone like Samoa then you wouldn't we wouldn't need the help like we would obviously have things go it was that you know we were going to them and saying look this is an island with like limited social opportunities for young people with massive obesity rate one of the highest in the world with you know type 2 diabetes is a huge issue here there's a lot of problems with substance abuse we didn't say anything to them but you know we'll go back to that. and you're looking at an island with that as a background and saying what we think we can you know we develop this sport it's going well it's growing and people are keen on it we just need to secure some help and it wasn't even us saying it as foreigners it was it was us um providing the assistance to local people to yeah. put that communication out there and, and there was nothing and it was not only nothing there was just a clear desire to slow the process down so that we you know people would just drift, drift away and that's that's what happens in in a lot of these islands is the reason they're not in fifa is because they generate some momentum like 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 we did and then they they get no and they get held up and they get held up and they get held up and then the people who were generating the momentum disappear yeah and i guess that is part of the sad story right that is part of the sad ending that mm-hmm. you don't know whether this will ever happen and, well, and whether there's like a clear pathway towards it where you can like progress on um, but yeah, do, yeah. yeah 
but but do you think how 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 are the spirits on Pompeii itself? Um, because I, we we checked and it was actually in the 2015 Pacific Games that they participated with the other islands. The under twenty three team. With the under twenty two and twenty three team, but um, it was not the most successful ter- tournament, I guess. Oh yeah, no, okay, so that that wow, that's kind of a long story. I don't know how much that you want to get into. Um, basically. So, the Federated States of Micronesia got themselves a little bit more organised, as I said, as a one unit representing yeah. the four yeah. islands, uh, Pompeii being one of them. It then, one of the few tournaments it has got access to is the Pacific Games, where there's like a multi-sport event, um, and one of them is football. So they were invited to send a team to Papua New Guinea, uh, and it's it's an Olympic qualifier for, you know, for all the other teams. Yeah. Um, and so you'd look at some of the strongest teams, so like New Zealand send their under-23s, Fiji are there, Vanuatu, like real heavyweights mm. in the region. Um, and the Federated States of Micronesia opted to send a team as a kind of statement to say, well, look, we're serious. Hope, hopefully, you know, the results were never going to be good, but they thought, well, let's, let's send a team as a demonstration of willing. And as far as that went, I mean, I was long off the island by then. I was, I was four years gone. But I really agreed with that in principle. But the thing that where it went really horribly wrong is that there's always a situation where because the islands are so detached, uh, it's very hard to merge a team from all of them. So what happened in the end was that on Yap, one of the other islands, where there was by that time a pretty active football programme, the coach there basically decided, was given the chance to to form the national team uh, and barely picked any Pompeii players. In fact, he picked almost all of his young kids. Um, I think two Pompeians went one of whom was Roger, in fact, uh, one of the players in our team who became a kind of superstar player. Um, but the, the team was just this rookie team of really inexperienced players. The rationale officially was, well, these guys are so young that they can use this as a development process. But it was horribly mismanaged. Um, you, you, it was by no means even close to the strongest team in Micronesia, which is absolute craziness when you look at the fact if you pick the strongest team in Micronesia, really drilled them, said, look, this is how you, you line up. This is damage limitation. Yeah. They probably lost between 15 and 20 mil to teams like Fiji because mm. they would. You know? yeah. Fiji, yeah. They're, they're looking at a 50 or 60 year developmental disadvantage and about you know, however many hundreds of thousands a year disadvantage in terms of funding. But instead, what they did was pick a team that barely knew the offside rule. Um, they didn't actually have a trained goalkeeper. And I've been told since, I don't, I don't totally know if that's even true or whether yeah. it's that they're trying to deny responsibility but basically they sent out a team that were lambs to the slaughter under this this coach this Aussie coach who, who'd been on Yap and they got absolutely destroyed I mean they got the kind of defeats that, that get you in the joke you know they were the joke and butt of the joke in, on social media and a lot of these players it really hurt them I think a lot of them probably gave up football I know the guys from Pompeii don't didn't like to talk about it much. It was it was humiliation. Yeah, a bit more than that. Losing thirty or forty nil to anyone, um, it it it's not developmental. You know, you don't come back from that and think, oh, that's really motivated me to kind of get training. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. No. Yeah. No. And so for me, it was like I got the idea. They wanted to show willing. They wanted to send a team. Yeah. They, they knew there was going to be a defeat, but it hopefully would bring the attention of OFC because you'd be like, well, here we are competing in a tournament full of OFC teams. You know surely something's got to give but the execution of it was horrific and it, it demonstrated two big big problems in Micronesia that one of them is that you've got these four islands with their own agendas and with their own people trying to 
trying to merge into one team despite being separated by thousands of miles and very expensive airfares it's, it's always going to be a battle to do that it's it's completely unrealistic yeah of course uh, really for the for to form teams uh, one single team but the other the other problem is just you know quite simply that that in in the in the end they had a the wrong set of players out there and and yeah it did more harm than good i think in a way it actually probably set football back a considerable distance yeah it, it looks quite bad because I, the full games I think are on YouTube but they're also like hurt by the format in that it's a four team group with the top team going through so all the three teams are playing for goal difference so you have the kind yeah. of weird circumstance that I think of like um, I'm not sure I think it's Yovanuatu beat them 46-0 but they scored like their 32nd goal and they're running to grab the ball to go back to the halfway line to get yeah, to get going enough. again it's a nasty system, and, and I mean, part of what you, part of what I would think is, in a way, what would be much better for the developmental, for, for teams in that region, would be um, competition with the other non-FIFA teams. So you know, you, Kiribati are much better, but you know, Kiribati, um, and then you've got Nui, Nauru, you know, Palau, places where there are embryonic and, and you know, pretty lapsed football programs, but where if they competed against each other they would be pretty equal. And similarly to that, in Micronesia, you have the Micro Games, which is a sort of Micronesia, just for the four, uh, four islands and the surrounding islands. You have um, you have a kind of series of competitions, and one of them is football. And so in that, Pompeii won that in 2010. Uh, in 2012 and I think 2014, they won that too. Um, so that was the crazy thing. In 2014, just before this, this farce in Papua New Guinea, yeah. Pompeii had won that tournament against mm. Yap against Chuk and against um, uh, who else turned up Palau and that was all you know local based and the competition was really fierce and it was like most games were sort of 2-0 3-0 3-1 proper football scores and that was a great developmental experience that that participation against teams of a similar level brilliant but the craziness of then saying well this team just won that competition will barely pick any of those players (laughs) (laughs) it's awful and it makes it still makes me really sad because uh it, it it was just such a wasted opportunity, I think. Yeah. I, the team that we had in Guam, if obviously you couldn't have picked that whole team because that would be very politically divisive, just a Pompeian team. But had we entered that team in that competition, we with with a solid amount of coaching from people who knew what they were doing, or even me, um, <laughs> you would have lost sort of fifteen nil against Fiji, maybe or t- maybe twenty to nil. But no one would have been talking about that on social media. You know? No. So, yeah. So, so how's the situation now? Like, what's the outlook? If if FIFA is not responding, um, and if there 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 are these problems with the whole um, federal state of Micronesia team, then then how do they keep the spirits up in Pompeii? Well, the sports sports still growing slowly. There's a lot of you know the league grows on the islands. Um, it's it's a bit it's a bit in a plateau now. I think it needs something new. So. A couple of years ago, a British coach called Chris Smith went out. Um, he was a guy who I spoke to him a lot, and he he basically wanted to go out and volunteer and spent three months out in Pompeii and coached I think, over 400 kids and helped schools learn how to put on sessions and did an amazing work. So yeah. I've got um, uh, a charity that, that I set up that's called Uncharted Football, and the idea is that we try and assist any coach that wants to go into the region to work with the local sort of football people whether that's a, an FA or whether that's just local sports authorities in any part of that region um, 
and the idea is then that that creates a sort of sustainable development um uh in in the meantime we also try and advise on any developments in the fifa you know fifa situation whether there are you know we, we help make representation to rfc we help make representation representation to afc whatever we, they they choose to do yeah but um it's difficult because the, the fundamental problem is the same problem it always has been it costs from europe or even the us it costs almost two thousand uh, pounds or you know return to, to get to these places so mm. it's very hard to find a volunteer help them raise that money and get them out of there it's just proved really really difficult but if we can get enough people you know this year we had quite high hopes pre-covid uh, we had quite high hopes for sending more coaches into the region and the idea again just work with the local people who are, who are developing football sustainable skill transfer and then just just try and keep that momentum going and at the same time explore whether there are pathways starting to emerge within the FIFA fold. But, uh, yeah, this year is had slightly different yeah. plans, so we're slightly in a, a limbo. Is Dilshan still on the island, or is he still coaching? No, he's in the USA now. Okay. Um, actually, a lot of the players will, well, like a significant percentage of our players are now in the US. Um, because Micronesia being in the sphere of influence of the USA, it's... Um, uh, any Micronesian is, is entitled to travel to the USA and, and can study there and can work there. So it's um, a lot of Micronesians when they're quite young, the age of our kids, you know, tw- going into 20s, um, often go to, go to the US and then work there or study there and then come back to Pompeii when they're a bit older. So I'm really excited actually when this generation of like our players start to come back and have kids in Pompeii. I think they're going to have a really big spike in, in ability there. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm conscious that we've taken a lot of your time already. So, but I was just curious about what's so what happened for you personally after Pompeii. I know you went and coached in Mongolia for a while, but is that a similar situation as in Pompeii, or what was that like? <laughs> I won't take up another hour of your time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I did an hour. Uh, not hour, I did a did a co- uh, three years with the Mongolian team. Initially coaching, and then. Uh, co-owning the team um, and then that came to an end and I joined CONIFA which was the basically the non-FIFA FIFA that represents sort of nation states and peoples not recognised by FIFA and so I spent time organised their World Cup in London in 2018 which sounds incredibly uh, interesting yeah yeah, yeah that, was, could... that was an interesting experience because I left there the organisation took a bit of a downward turn uh, in, in the last kind of year so I left there and then this year, I was supposed to be helping organise a Rohingya FA Cup in the camps in Bangladesh. But oh, yes, yeah. uh, just a few weeks before the tournament was going to start, COVID really like started to, to escalate. And we had to take the decision to postpone it indefinitely. And, um, and that's still, sadly, kind of postponed while we just kind of pray things don't get worse in, the, in terms of, of COVID in the camps. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, my career is very much sort of, focused on just trying to help people express identity through football and trying to help people who, who aren't getting any assistance with football really yeah no, no, but that but in general um, do you think or, or what do you think football brings to all of these people because it seems to initiate something it seems to create a spark or at least a structure where you go to trainings every now and then or where you can just, I mean, let out some of the emotions or whatever. 
Like, what do you think? Why do you think football is so important, especially for 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 people that are struggling um, socioeconomically or or just in general? Yeah, I think I think one of the big things I've seen is is football identity. I think where football matters is where it still is about identity. So that's why I've never. That's why I feel like the superpowers of the game and the commercialization of the game it's lost that soul. It's lost that purpose. So for me, where football matters is where it's people saying this is this is this is who I am. And yeah. It has a value. Look at me express that. And I feel like where I have most enjoyed working, whether it's Pompeii or whether it's with the World Cup in London and having Tibet there, you know, watching the Tibetans sing their anthem, it's it's often about people being told your identity does matter, you matter, mm. and it doesn't matter whether you're trying to get a win. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to get your first ever goal and you're 30 nil down. It, it matters that you're putting on that shirt and you're representing who you are. And I feel like everyone should have the right to be able to do that, to pull on a football shirt, represent who they are. And, and every person who wants to do that is equally important. And, and yeah, that, that for me is what I've seen, is how it brings out to people a pride and a sense of value and a sense of worth that often they don't really realise has been denied them until they get the chance to do it yeah i feel like that's a brilliant message to finish up on thank you so much for <laughs> joining us paul oh thank you i really enjoyed it thank you bye bye Podcast Network.